0: There it is. A win for the ages. This is All-American, a new series from Stitcher. You realize Tiger Woods doesn't know who he is. Best in the history of golf. No question in my mind. And this season, we're asking.
1: What if the story of Tiger Woods that the media has been telling, what if it's been completely wrong?
0: Season one of All-American premieres August 20th. Subscribe or favorite now.
1: Do you remember my 21st birthday? I do not. Uh, I have a very bad memory. I'm talking here to one of my very best friends in the world, Kirsten Seer. You heard her on last week's show. Do you? Uh-huh? <laughs> it was right after I had graduated college and I had a major crush on two different guys who each had a girlfriend and we all met up at this bar and one guy was encouraging me to take shots encouraging is putting it mildly um, and then the other guy had made me a pudding pie and was trying to get me to eat that and they were each kind of being like, no, do the shots, no, eat the p- pudding pie, and don't do the other thing, because you're going to mm. get sick. And I think you were looking at me and being like, don't do any of it. <laughs> 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 um, but I did all of it. Uh-huh. <laughs> you were 21. I was 21. You are 21. And the thing that I remember most about that evening is that um, I was sitting on my bed and you were sitting there with a bucket and you were tying my hair back. Mm. You knew I was going to throw up before I did. Mm. And I just, it, to me, it like sums up you. You're like this caretaker who like knows what people need before they even know it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> wow. That's a, that's a generous Statement, Yeah. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, I... You hear that discomfort in Kirsten's voice? You've had that kind of discomfort before. It's that thing you feel when someone points out something that they admire about you, but for you, that personality trait is super complicated. When someone compliments you on this thing, all you can do is go... <laughs> well, yeah, I... This is The Longest, Shortest Time. I'm Hilary Frank. Last week, we heard all about Kirsten's dad, Norm, his fun, his chaos, and how that affected Kirsten's childhood. If you haven't heard it yet, go listen to that first. It's episode 112. This week, we continue Kirsten's story with the uncomfortable ways your parents can impact your personality as a grown-up, and how you often don't see those things coming. When we left off last week, Kirsten's dad, Norm, had died. He'd been a drinker all of his adult life, and he died in his 60s of health complications from that drinking. For years, Kirsten tried to help him, taking him to doctors, visiting him in rehab, trying to be a a light, upbeat presence in his life. She thought if she could just show her dad how much she loved him, she could bring back the Norm who spontaneously wrote poetry. A daughter is the sweetest gift a lifetime can provide a blessing and a constant source of happiness and pride. The Norm who let her play hooky when she got dumped in high school. And he um, took me out on a day's worth
0: of adventures.
1: The Norm who helped her make centerpieces for her wedding out of weeds from the side of the road. What we would call side of the roadia, Maybe, just maybe, Kirsten thought, if she could remind Norm that he was that guy, maybe he'd get sober. Instead, Norm got more and more distant, more depressed, and Kirsten finally realized there was nothing she could do. He died three and a half years ago. Always remember, little daughter, that if you want something, there's always a way of making your dreams come true. Dream, my daughter, and live to make those dreams real. These days, Kirsten's a child therapist, which, when she chose that job, I was not surprised. Kirsten's the kind of friend who's always counseling people on their problems. Like at parties, people kind of take turns with her, spilling their guts about their love life, their family, money troubles. I've often wondered if Kirsten does all that because of all the caretaking she had to do for her father.
0: Yes. I, I think it comes from two things. Um, you know, I, I think, my. you know, my dad was a tinkerer. And my husband's a tinkerer and, you know, able to, to fix things and, and build things and make things. And I, I think I'm a person tinkerer. Um, and that I, I think that my tinkering, human tinkering skills are a combination of having a shit ton of practice that was the kind of practice that felt like it was, you know, live or die. You know, the kind of practice where you get, you know, you feel like, well, if I listen or if I help this one time, I am going to save that person. And and you get hooked on that. You get hooked on that both, um, you know, as far as the pressure of that, but you also get hooked on the high, right? Like there's, there's a real uh, – there's a payoff in that. It is part of why we, you know – I think why people enable and why people are codependent and, and – because we do get some payoff from it of feeling powerful, falsely, but feeling powerful, feeling like we can be a savior, we can be a a helper. But I also really like it. And this is the part that, you know, as, as you and I have known each other over the years that I've tried to sift through is – What is the part that I really enjoy and what is the part that is more connected to feeling this this sense of duty or sense of urgency?
1: Kirsten has worked hard on making sure she only takes care of people when it's something she wants to do. And I'm lucky enough to have been on the receiving end of that. Seven years ago, when I had my baby, Kirsten came and stayed with me for a week. She changed diapers, drove me to doctor's appointments, bought me treats, gave me back rubs, swept my apartment, and helped me discover the only position where my baby would breastfeed without screaming her head off. Kirsten even got up with my kid in the middle of the night and got her back down way faster than I ever could. On the last day of her visit, I told Kirsten that I felt like this craziness of early motherhood was never going to end. And she told me, just remember, this right now, this is the longest, shortest time.
0: This is just a period of time. This is a stage. It's not going to last forever.
1: And that's how Kirsten named my show, before either of us even knew I'd make a show. Kirsten knows from longest, shortest times. Hers happened 11 years ago when she had her son, Jack. Jack was a preemie in intensive care. You might actually remember this story. I talked about it with Kirsten in episode 21. Um. So her baby Jack needed to hit five pounds before they'd let him leave the hospital. And Kristen would call the nurses every night at midnight to check in on his weight. And then she'd lie in bed awake. And I literally just had the numbers
0: running through my head. So it would just be this like... Four pounds, nine ounces, four pounds, nine ounces, four pounds, nine ounces. Like the number would just be running through my head over and over and over over again. Then I would fall asleep and I'd wake up and that number would be there again. Four pounds, nine ounces. And then in the morning, I'd go in and, you know, be so anxious to see what the number was. And as if miraculously overnight, he would, you know, gain weight. It was a moment in my life of sheer fear. And When I look back on it now, I don't remember a lot, but what I remember was being sort of my worst self in a lot of ways, being edgy and, um, you know, nitpicking and quick-tempered and, you know, really just bitchy, really, you know, in that sort of caged animal sort of way.
1: Caged animal style bitchiness is kind of natural when you're living with the burden of keeping a person alive and also getting zero sleep. Jack eventually hit that five pound mark and came home, but Kirsten was still under pressure to keep Jack's weight up. She was feeding him every couple of hours, all day and all night. She'd nurse him at 10, then midnight, then two. And that was her last feeding. Her husband would take the 5 a.m. shift and get up with a bottle of breast milk.
0: And I would go downstairs and I would open a bottle of wine and I would pour myself a glass. And I'd go back upstairs. Like what
1: time? This was what time of night was at this? At like
0: two or three in the morning. And I would go back upstairs and I would take that first sip and I would feel all of the stress of the day and all of the stress of... Having you know been up for hours, you know nursing a baby and, and taking care of a baby, and I would feel it drain from my body, and warmth would fill. It would start at the top of my head, and it would move all the way down my body. And as the warmth moved down my body, as I was taking those first sips, all of the stress would drain out, and it would be replaced with that warmth.
1: It just sneaks up on us, right? Those things we get from our parents. But will Kirsten's relationship with alcohol turn out to be like norms? We'll find out next. Don't go away. (laughs) We are back with my friend Kirsten Sear, who watched her dad's mind, body, and personality disintegrate as he drank for decades. When Kirsten's son Jack was born, her dad was drinking in secret. He'd been in rehab a couple of times. Jack was a preemie, underweight, which stressed Kirsten out. And she was starting to figure out that the one thing that could really calm her down was wine. Yeah, Were were you ever worried that you were going to, like, alcoholism runs in families. Were you ever worried that it was gonna be a problem for you. No, no,
0: I was I was very convinced that I had, um, that I had uh, missed that, that I had been saved, that I had escaped, that I had gotten out, and was not um, that that was not going to be a- an issue
1: for me. Kirsten barely drank when I met her in college. In her twenties, she saw drinking as a sophisticated thing, not like how her dad did it. She'd drink wine from a glass, not a big gulp. She would drive to vineyards for tastings, not with a can of Colt 45 between her legs, chucking the empties out the window. When Kirsten got pregnant at 30, giving up alcohol was a piece of cake. But after Jack, things shifted.
0: In the beginning, when he was, you know, very, very little, it was like, oh, man, yeah, okay. This is nice to have, you know, this shortcut. And... I drank pretty consistently from that point on and drank more and more. And I started really making that connection, that that's how I dealt with things when they were hard. But I still didn't believe that it had control over me. I
1: still believed that I could make choices about it. Jack eventually filled out, became a chubby baby. By age three, he'd become the life of the party. That's a video I shot of Jack on his toddler drum kit. And seriously, he actually got really good. He got good at drawing, too. Black and white pen and ink. But of course, as Jack got older, he started to have older kid worries and problems, struggles with friends and self-confidence. Kirsten was already overwhelmed. Norm, her dad, was cycling in and out of the hospital. And now Jack was a second person she loved and couldn't quite fix.
0: There would be a hard moment, you know, of him sharing something that was making him sad or something that was bothering him, and I would be half listening to that and half thinking about, "Wow, it's really hard as a mom to hear your kid suffering and have your kid be hurting and not be able to help them." I'm, I can't wait till I can, you know, get back downstairs and and get back to my glass of wine. That's gonna, I'm gonna feel a lot better then.
1: It's so interesting because that's also like your superpower that's like your thing is like <laughs> like when people are cornering you to tell you their problems like you seem to relish that so mm. why is it harder for you to do with your kid well this is the this is the thing about that superpower is
0: part of why it works is being able to keep things away from your heart whereas when it comes to the you know the people that you love the most it's almost all heart and that's the challenge is is being able to get a a little space from that heart so that you can create a, a little bit of of distance and not feel that that suffering so so deeply that it um devours if you if you felt
1: it all the time you would you it would be unbearable
0: it would be unbearable. It would be unbearable. That's right.
1: Yeah. Were you like, were you ever driving drunk with Jack Mm -hmm. in the car? Oh yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I, I, I think the thing that, that impacted, um, and I don't, I don't mean to say that blithely at all. Um, I can't, you know, now I, even then I can't believe that, that I made those, that decision, um, the most important thing though, was to drink and that's, that's what mattered the most in those moments. What mattered the most was, was to be drinking. Um, but, but maybe even the bigger thing is that, and the thing that I, um, I hope that I can make peace with in myself is that I could not possibly have been as present as I wish that I was. You know, there's no way. I thought about drinking a lot. And um, it took up a lot
1: of bandwidth, right? It took up a lot of space. Throughout Kristen's day, she'd get these worries. Jack being in a fight with his best friend, her dad being in the psych hospital. And then she'd think about when she could have a drink. The irony is, like, you're in pain because you're, like, watching someone you love drank and and then to like rid yourself of that pain you're drinking
0: yeah right oh yeah no that's the that is the irony isn't it it's that beautiful circle that just keeps looping over and over and over again any hard moment in the course of my day I knew oh but when you get home you're gonna be able to open the bottle Th- that was how I, I would calm myself you know, no matter what was going on was that I knew that I had that in my back pocket I knew that that bottle was waiting for me and if it wasn't waiting for me then I would be spending a lot of time kind of planning
1: Still, Kirsten would tell herself I'm not like my dad I'm not an alcoholic none of us thought she was I mean, I sometimes saw when I came to visit that Kirsten couldn't make it to breakfast because she was hungover but that happens to lots of people, right? Her husband, Jamie, knew she was drinking way more than he was and that she always had a glass of wine on her nightstand. But he says that didn't scare him. He thought about their household almost like a restaurant operation, front of the house and back of the house. He's in the back, cooking the food, doing the bookkeeping. She's in the front, handling the vibe. Kirsten felt that way, too, most of the time. But then these niggling doubts would creep into her mind
0: you know, as a therapist, I did realize that I didn't have very many coping skills that, um, <laughs> that this was kind of it. And, you know, there were many in your professional opinion. Yeah. in My professional <laughs> opinion, I really needed to diversify a little bit. And I knew I did know that, you know, that was always in the back of my head. I mean, I, I would have that feeling so often when I would talk to parents, I work with children, but, um, So I equally work with with their parents. And I would be suggesting that they try utilizing different, a variety of coping skills. And I was not using a variety of coping skills. And I would have
1: that feeling sometimes where I'd be like, man, you know, this is the pot calling the kettle black. But Kirsten didn't get new coping skills, even after her dad died. Well, maybe especially after her dad died.
0: I was drinking a bottle, sometimes two bottles of wine a night, and, you know, I wasn't sleeping great and I felt dehydrated and, um, I was tired a lot. I just didn't have, I didn't have a lot of stamina. I have asthma and my breathing was really bad. I mean, I would look in the mirror and I, I, you know, I, I felt like I was, I could see myself aging so quickly, um, I had, you know, gained so much weight over the years from drinking. That was another one of those things where I have a a, a good pal and we'd be like, well, you know what? We're exercising and we're eating well. And like, why aren't we losing weight? And we were drinking a thousand calories a day and we knew why we weren't losing weight. And we knew that there was one thing that we could do that would change that. I knew there was one thing I could do that could change that. And I couldn't do it. I woke up every day. Saying, "This has got to stop. You have to stop." And I would have a lot of um, energy, positive energy, and hope around stopping, and that would last until about noon. And then I would start. I would change the story. The story would go from "You're, um, you're gonna be able to do it. You're gonna stop." You, you know, when you're, you're gonna go to the, go exercise when you get home, or you know, you, um, you gonna drink some tea or, the, you know, all these different things that I was going to tell myself that I was going to, I would tell myself I was going to do. And then noon would come and the story would start to change. And I would start convincing myself that I wasn't going to be able to do it, that I wasn't going to be able to stop. And by the time I was driving home, I was sure that I wasn't going to be able to stop. Um, and, and really had that same moment that I had that day when I came home and said, the only way that this is going to end is with my dad dying. I said that to myself, the only way this is going to end, the only way you'll ever stop drinking is because you're dead. And... I'd like to say that I made that connection and was like, remember that's how you felt about your dad. It, but no, it was all just a <laughs> giant mess. You know, I didn't have that I didn't make that connection. It wasn't this like aha moment. It was just a uh, it, it was just a, a a desperate sort of giving in to the fact.
1: Coming up, Kristen has a manic Monday. You'll see what I mean. Stay with us. <laughs> We are back with my friend, Kirsten. Kirsten says that after her dad died, she woke up every morning for three years straight, worried about what impact her drinking might be having on her son and her husband, and on herself. And she was finally starting to realize that she might be drinking too much.
0: And this is it. It got you. You did not escape, you didn't get out, and you don't have the skills to to deal with this, you just like your dad, just like my dad. Yes. You know, that's the thing is that th- there was no roadmap. I do- I had no models for what it looked like to really get sober. I, I d- had no idea what that looked like. I had never seen that in my life. So I didn't believe it could happen.
1: Kristen had been talking to her husband about trying to slow down her drinking, maybe only drink on the weekend. He was like, great, I'll do it too, which he did. And she tried, but buckled almost immediately. Then, just last summer, August 9th rolled around.
0: It was the third anniversary of my father's death. Uh, And I woke up that morning, and I I told my husband, you know, this is the anniversary of my dad's death. And he said, are you going to commemorate it in some way?
1: Kirsten thought it was a funny question. She'd never commemorated Norm's death before. After he died, she'd just honor his birthday by playing Tina Turner nonstop, but never his death. This was a Monday, and I thought, yeah, I probably should do something to to commemorate
0: it. And I was trying to kind of think of different ideas. Um, and And then I went to therapy. I had therapy that morning. And we talked about a lot of other things, and in the last five minutes of the session— I said, so it's the anniversary of my dad's death. And um, I thought maybe one way that I could commemorate that is by thinking a little bit and talking a little bit about um, my drinking. And I had talked to her about that a little bit in the past. And we had kind of tossed around some ideas of different strategies for kind of getting ready to, to think about stopping. And she said... So have you told Jamie, your husband, have you told him that you're an alcoholic? <laughs> and I like my mouth was open and I stared at her and I said, no, I haven't told myself that I'm an alcoholic. I definitely haven't said it out <laughs> loud to him. I haven't said it out loud. I haven't said it out loud in my head. Were you like, what are you calling me? I absolutely was. I absolutely was. Yes, yes. And I'm sure I, I crossed my arms, you know, across my chest, and, um, you know, and and she said, so, I, uh, you know, what do you think? Do you think you're an alcoholic? And I said, well, that's fucking interesting. Uh, yeah. And she said, well, do you think you um would want to go to a meeting? I said, ah, no, no, uh, uh-uh, uh, nope, nope, <laughs> nope. And she said, why? And I said, because then I have to say that I'm an alcoholic. And I wasn't working that day, um, and I uh, I I went home, and I was ratsin and fratsin the whole way, you know, like ah, oh, you know, what is she talking about? And you know, no, I'm not a, you know, um, you know, yeah, I guess I, yeah, I, guess I'm an alcoholic, but I, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't I'm not going to go to any meetings, and and fortunately, I had a lot of paperwork I had to do, and my. My will to avoid that paperwork was stronger in that moment, I think, than my will to try and and um, avoid thinking about being uh, an <laughs> alcoholic. And so I just went online and I did some research and I looked and I saw that there was a meeting that was literally down the street from my house that
1: was happening in 10 minutes. This thing was steps away. It was happening right now, and it was all women. She went,
0: and I had been to meetings before with my dad, um, and that didn't end well, right? So I didn't, I, I didn't, um, I didn't have a great experience, and I didn't feel very hopeful about it. But what I'd forgotten is that the standard thing is you you say you go around the room and you say your name and you say you're an alcoholic. And the first person said it. And as it got closer and closer to me, this has happened a couple of times in, in my life. It happened when I said my vows at my wedding that my voice turned to a whisper. Um, and that happened when it came my, to my turn. And I essentially whispered, you know, hi, my name's Kirsten and I'm an alcoholic and it really, it, it felt like it was, um, it felt like it took something that was liquid or, um, you know, or gaseous and made it, turned it into a solid. And I cried the rest of the meeting
1: <laughs> and I don't remember most of what people said. Kirsten leaves the meeting in a daze. She walks down the hill on autopilot. Feels like her feet are just leading her, one in front of the other. She heads into downtown, goes to her favorite store, buys a journal and a nice pen.
0: And then I went down the street a little bit further, and I went to my favorite bar. And I sat down, and I proceeded to have three delicious champagne cocktails, <laughs> one right after <laughs> the other.
1: It's one in the afternoon on a Monday.
0: And um And I just started writing in the journal. And I've always wanted to be a journal writer. And as a therapist, I've often recommended journaling. And I just sat there and I filled pages with
1: why I thought I could quit. In that column, she wrote, I've got amazing supports. Drinking is not part of my immediate family or friend culture. I'm strongish and smartish. And I don't even like it anymore.
0: Why I thought I couldn't
1: quit. In that column, I don't have great coping skills. I don't like or know what my identity as a sober person could be. I want the party to continue. And it's in my blood.
0: And I scribbled and I scribbled and I wrote and I wrote. And I knocked back
1: those champagne cocktails. And I was still pretty ambivalent. Kirsten walks home. It's hot, humid, and entirely uphill. She feels sick to her stomach. At home, she breaks down crying, like holding her knees, rocking back and forth crying She's a mess, but it doesn't occur to her to cancel her plans the rest of the day. She pulls herself together and heads to her tennis class. She's so desperate to appear like everything's fine that she fights the urge to throw up, concentrates like crazy, and hits the ball better than she ever has in her life. Right after that, she's got the first meeting of a book club with a friend.
0: And I was really excited because what we had decided was we were going to have our book club at this great local restaurant in our neighborhood, uh, that serves delicious margaritas. And I thought it was really, um, that I was very witty because I called us the Margarita Readers, which I thought was <laughs> fabulous. And so the the inaugural Margarita Readers um, uh, meeting was that night. And I think the fir- one of the first things out of my mouth was, um, I think I am an alcoholic and I think I'm going to quit. And she was incredibly supportive and really lovely and, uh, you know, said, do you, um, do you have a plan? Are you, you know, are you thinking when you're going to quit? And I said, ah, man, I still was so ambivalent. And, um, and I said, I guess, I don't know, I guess tomorrow, I guess I, I guess tomorrow and I, I, you know, had a couple margaritas that night and, um, mm-hmm. you know, I was very, I, I was also sort of caught up in, you know, and what will other people think of, of me? Will other people, what are other people's impressions going to be? What will other people's um, thoughts and, and ideas be about me? Will people, uh, will I make people uncomfortable, right? This is the pleaser and the caretaker. Like, will I make people uncomfortable? <laughs> will I make people uncomfortable <laughs> with my not drinking? Um, <laughs> you know, like, and, and how do you navigate that? And so I, I did not know what the hell I was
1: doing. After all that the therapy, the meeting, the champagne cocktails, the tennis, the margaritas, Kirsten goes home. She's already admitted at this point to, like, 20 relative strangers that she's an alcoholic, but she still hasn't said it to her husband. When she gets home, Jamie's sitting up in bed. Kirsten's been wanting to talk to him all day, but was waiting to do it in person. I um, curled up in bed next
0: to him, and and I said the words out loud. And I said, I'm an alcoholic. Um, and I don't remember exactly what he said, but it probably was along the lines of, like, okay... You know, and uh, you know he knew. Um, and what I remember from that moment was that I became incredibly sad because I I felt like he was getting a bum deal. And even though we've been together since high school, we've been together um, twenty five years now married for 15 together for 25 I still felt like I had tricked him and he ended up with an alcoholic and what a bum deal that was for him and I said you know I'm so sorry I'm so sorry that you that I'm an alcoholic and that you married an alcoholic and he in his brilliant beautiful way you know just I think leaned over and held my hand and said you're the same person you were yesterday you're the same person you've always been there's, there's, there's nothing different about you and I, you know that's it's not lost on me that the way in which he sees me is so similar to the way in which my dad sees me saw me um,
1: and loved me Kirsten stopped drinking the next day and she didn't drink the day after that or the day after that.
0: I remember my first Friday being like, oh shit, man. How do you have a Friday night without drinking? How do you have a weekend without how is it a weekend without drinking? You know, how how do you how do you unwind and know that it's the weekend and that it's uh, a relaxing fun time without drinking?
1: Kirsten drinks elixirs now, which is really just a fancy word for seltzer and juice. She likes to have a glass in her hand. I visited Kristen's family a few weeks after she got sober, and her son Jack, who's now 11, handed her a glass of elixir and said, here's your wine, mom. And then he caught himself, looked embarrassed, said he was sorry. She was like, no, honey, it's okay. It used to be. Um, I was just talking to him tonight
0: before, um, before he went up to bed and explaining to him that I was going to be talking to you and what I was talking to you about and he was like but mom you're not an alcoholic actually he said you're not an alcoholist which I think is a great line alcoholist <laughs> you're not an alcoholist <laughs> <laughs> i kind of like that better actually yeah. and, and you're not an alcoholist mom um and and i said why, you know why why do you think i'm not and he said well because i don't know like it you didn't drink all the time and it wasn't a big problem for you and you weren't drunk a lot and I have not been entirely ready to talk to him about what it felt like for him. And I don't know if mm-hmm. he's entirely ready because I, when I bring it up, I still get that reaction of like, oh, I don't know. I don't think
1: you are. I don't know what you're talking about. How did how did drinking impact your your motherhood?
0: Well, that's a good question. And I'll probably be able to tell you more. Maybe Jack will be able to tell you more in 20 years. And <laughs> yeah, do you do you worry about him and drinking? I don't, and I'll tell you why. Because, um, you know, I, I was so afraid of suffering when I was little that I, at all costs, would try and avoid suffering. And that's that's primarily why I drank, because I didn't want to feel things and I didn't want to suffer. But I don't see him having some of those um predispositions in, in, in how he, um, deals with the world, how he interacts with the world. You know, we have talked a little bit about, uh, about it with him in terms of, you know, something that he has to think about just like his dad has high blood pressure and from a health history kind of standpoint, you know, these are the things that you have to be aware of. Um, you know, and I'm sure we'll talk about it, you know, for the rest
1: of my life. Kirsten also says Jack's got better coping strategies than she ever did as a kid. A lot of that is because she's used her child therapy techniques with him. Like when he was really little, she'd have him do body checks, where like in his mind he'd scan his body to see if he was feeling hungry, tired, or sick, and if that stuff was leading to another feeling. Today, as a preteen, he's good at talking about his feelings. And when he's upset, he'll listen to music or play drums or take deep breaths. Kristen's big challenge is teaching herself how to cope too. So here's what she's been doing. Every day at happy hour, she does hot yoga. The practice is helping her to be with pain, to breathe through it. Actually, when she first started that class, she felt like she was literally sweating out the alcohol. And almost every night, she takes a bath. She actually posts pictures of herself on Instagram, soaking in the tub. She says it's to keep herself accountable. Making her recovery public will hopefully keep her from drinking secretly like her dad did. It's only been six months since Kirsten put herself on a screeching cold turkey halt from taking the same downward trajectory as her dad.
0: I was, you know, I I was in the tub. One of my coping skills the other day had this great new bath bomb that somebody had given me, one of those lush bath bombs, and was, you know, just feeling so calm. And listening to music and just feeling so deeply calm. And out of nowhere, out of left field, I wasn't even stressed. I wasn't even thinking about suffering or or pain. Out of left field, I had this epiphany, this thought that, oh, you know, this killed your dad. This didn't just kill, you know, random people. This killed your dad. It's going to get you. Out of nowhere. I was in my most calm moment, and I still felt that, and for a fleeting moment, believed it, fully, that it still is possible, that
1: it will kill me. Wow. Yeah. And then did you, and then what? Like, did you?
0: And then it went away. Thank goodness. Uh (laughs) And then it went away. You know, it came and
1: it went. Kristen says this whole sobriety thing, it's her new longest, shortest time.
0: You know, that those early years of of motherhood, um, that that feeling has shifted. and, And I don't feel like the longest, shortest time about sort of parenting as much anymore. But I'm curious. I wonder if my sobriety will always feel like the longest, shortest time or if that will also change uh, in time. We'll have to see. We'll have to talk again.
1: Oh, do I have to talk to you again? (laughs) (laughs) More, more, more. Huge, huge thanks to Kirsten for sharing this story. She has been telling it to me for years privately, and that's meant a lot to me. And I knew it would mean a lot to you to hear it. Kristen has put together a list for us um, of some of the resources that have helped her through these last few months. You can find those at our website. She says that one of the reasons she didn't recognize her alcoholism right away is because her addiction looked so different from her dad's. In fact, addiction looks different for everyone. So we want to hear from you. How has it looked for the people in your life? Leave your thoughts at LongestShortestTime.com in the comments for this episode. That's episode 113. This podcast is produced by me, Hilary Frank, with Kristen Clark and Abigail Keel. We are edited by Peter Clowney. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our technical director is the Reverend John Delore. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov and directed by Allison Layton Brown. We get editorial support from Anne-Marie Baldonado, Antonia Akatunde, and Reka Murthy. Special thanks this week to Patty White and Maine Public Radio. Next week starting a family when it is not obvious how.
0: When it first came up in discussion, my first reaction was, why? Like, we can be we can like, you know, travel the world and like have, you know, save our money and buy yeah I don't know, whatever. I was just thinking about other <laughs> ways kidding, to save your money.
1: <laughs> One of our favorite guests, Kyria Traber, is going to be back with three of her friends to puzzle through becoming a parent when you're a queer person of color. As always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we are looking for your stories. Right now, we are especially looking for paranormal parenting stories. If you've ever consulted a psychic for parenting advice, if you think your kid might secretly be an alien, or if there's anything else you want to tell us, go to longestshortesttime.com and submit your story. Hey, this is Jason Sklar, one of the hosts of Sklarbro Country, a podcast here on Earwolf that we love doing. And we have a fantastic episode where we sit down with the hilarious Caitlin Olson. We talk to her about her comedic process. We talk to her about some inside the actor studio, behind the scenes, it's always sunny in Philadelphia stuff. Here's a clip are your kids in karate? Ours are in jujitsu. Does Rob take the classes with your kids? He would love to. <laughs> he <laughs> takes jujitsu, like adult jujitsu. <laughs> but like for the first 4 or 5 times he brought his gi and everything in a bag. I'm like what do you expect's going to happen in there? We had a blast. I think you'll enjoy it. And uh, you can check it on earwolf.com, iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Scarbro Country. Get into it. Stand up. You sing Earwolf? Yeah. Hey,
0: This has been an Earwolf production. Executive produced by Scott Ackerman and Chris Bannon. For more
1: information and content, visit Earwolf.com.